listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Tonight we mark the seventh and final Sunday in Eastertide. It's a kind of an in-between day, really, landing as it does between Ascension Day which happened on Thursday, 40 days after Easter, and Pentecost, the 50th day after Easter Day, next Sunday. On both Ascension Day and Pentecost, the church tells rather wild stories, stories that stretch the imagination. On Ascension Day, it's the story of the resurrected Jesus being swept up bodily into the heavens, which among other things means he didn't grow old and die again, but rather continues to live in the presence of the God he calls Father. On Pentecost, next Sunday, it will be the story of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which is experienced by those disciples as all wind and fire, an almost unspeakable power which frees them to speak freeze their tongues to speak their truth in a multitude of languages. In the in-between, in this period, the disciples finally managed to do what Jesus had told them to do. They go back to Jerusalem. They assume a posture of waiting. The verses just prior to today's reading from Acts We were told that when they had entered the city, the disciples went to the room upstairs where they were staying, where they constantly devoted themselves to prayer, together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers, constantly devoting themselves to prayer, which to me speaks less of a 10-day prayer meeting and more of a posture of radical openness and expectation. They're keeping a kind of a vigil, in other words, rather than doing, which all the way through the gospel stories has been Peter's default setting. He's always eager to do something. Rather than doing, they're finally just being. There is, though, this one piece of work to which they find they must attend, so it's hardly surprising that it's Peter, the doer, who sets it in motion. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers. Together, the crowd numbered about 120 people. Push the pause button for just a moment. We just read that the disciples had with them certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, along with his brothers, which in itself is notable. It wasn't just a band of 11 men. There were women and Jesus' family members there as well. But now Luke says that there were a total of 120. 120 people prepared to risk being known as the followers of the one who the Romans had crucified. So even in these in-between days, something is clearly happening. Peter said, 
Friends, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit through David foretold concerning Judas, who became a guide for those who arrested Jesus. For Judas was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Judas had been numbered among us. He was one of us. He had a share in the ministry, as much a share in the ministry as any of the other eleven. But his betrayal and his ensuing death had left them as a company of only eleven. And so Peter initiates a process to replace Judas. It isn't something they keep doing every time one of the disciples is killed. And that will begin to play out in the book of Acts. Rather, it's something that seems to have been enormously important at that moment. Twelve was an incredibly significant number in Judaism because Israel was made up of twelve tribes. The prophets had long spoken of regathering those tribes, which had been scattered and then disappeared 700 years earlier when the northern kingdom of Israel was defeated by the Assyrians. And so the prophets had said, when the time becomes right, they will be regathered 12 again. Now, in this space of openness and expectation, there is this sense that the disciples need to signify their faith that Jesus really is the Messiah. He really is the fulfillment. And they need to do it by naming a twelfth disciple. So Peter continues with one basic qualification in the job description needs to be someone who's been with us right from the beginning, right from when John baptized Jesus. And there were in their company apparently two people who fit the bill. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice, and Matthias. They prayed that the right selection be made, and then they cast lots. As Bishop N.T. Wright teasingly observes, this striking method of selection, if applied today, would simplify clergy appointments to no end. The lot falls on Matthias, and he's added to the twelve, yet after that his name doesn't again appear in the book of Acts. Neither does the name Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice. You have to wonder what happened to dear old Justice. I hope he wasn't so hurt and rejected that he left the company. In fact, he might have been relieved. The important point, though, doesn't have to do with the two of them or even the casting of lots. The important point seems to be the number 12. It's now 12 disciples in the company of some 120 others. Notice that 120 is 12 tenfold, which may itself have some significance. It's now that group who wait in a posture of openness for what is about to unfold. Well, what's about to unfold is also the subject of the prayer Jesus offered in John 17, part of which we heard read aloud tonight. 
As you have sent me into the world, Jesus prays, so I have sent them into the world. They are about to be unleashed. Not just the twelve, either, but everyone who catches this vision of discipleship is about to be set free. It's 120 of them in Acts 1, but it will soon spread like wildfire, so that by the end of Acts 2, there's talk that some 3,000 were baptized in a single day. Yes, that Jesus movement is about to be unleashed into the world. But as Mita Stamper observes in her comments on this gospel reading, the world, a word that appears 13 times in those 14 verses we heard read aloud tonight, the word is complicated in John. Sometimes sounds as if the world is a place that's all threat, all danger, all hostility. The world has hated them, Jesus says, hated them because they do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. And yet, this is the world that God so loved, as John 3.16 puts it. Indeed, Jesus says in John 3.17, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So on the one hand, it is this place of threat and danger. On the other, this place loved and cherished. And so, Christians have often picked up on that phrase. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. It's a phrase that can roll off our tongues so very easily. That's the answer, to be in, but not of. Yet, as N.T. Wright puts it, the smooth little steps by which in is turned into of are the dance that comes naturally to our wayward feet. It's not an easy balance to maintain in, yet not of. It's so easy to find ways to justify this, that, or the other thing. Just fine. It's inconsequential. It's justifiable. It doesn't matter that kind of of. And so the slip. And suddenly you've got medieval monasteries owning vast amounts of land and holding common people in servitude. All somehow justifiable. The dance from in to of. Or you've got churches, denominations, who find that they have investments in the armaments industry. Or, looking south of the border, you have pastors of megachurches driving Rolls Royces and Bentleys as a sign that God has favored their ministry, blessed it. Those are just some of the more obvious examples of the kind of dance that comes naturally to our wayward feet, all of us are quite capable of rather more subtle slippages. The other side of that, though, is what N.T. Wright calls the strides by which not of becomes not in, which can march us toward a dualism that makes nonsense of the incarnation itself. To be fearful of the world is to risk rejecting not only its brokenness, 
Think of the Hutterites. Think of the other withdrawal movements. We're not going to be part of the brokenness. But then they begin to fail to see the world's beauty, its gifts, its possibilities, its promise. And so, in doing that, to effectively try to override the prodigious love God has for this prodigal world. It's those kind of questions, those very same questions, that the disciples and the others in their company had before them as they waited through those ten days between Jesus' ascension and the explosion that was Pentecost. Where is God about to take us in this political, social, and religious world that was so violently hostile to Jesus? Where is God going to take us? How will we, we be disciples in a world that may be as hostile to us as it was to him? But don't you remember him saying how much God loved this world? How much God wished to save this world. Don't you remember his stories about new beginnings and second chances and that prodigal love? How can we live and pray and follow into that? And so, between Ascension and Pentecost, with their hands open and their hearts open, they wait and they pray and they be in open expectation, which is the gift given us too, the claim placed on us too in these last ten days of Eastertide. Wait, pray, be. Hear the stories and the teachings. Hear the tension between in and of the world with open and expectant hands and open and discerning hearts. In a world broken, yes, abused, yes, yet ever so lovely, how shall we live and pray and follow? Questions for discernment in these closing days of Eastertide. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For more information on the church or to offer your support for our ministries, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca.